Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and we're happy to see you all here on this chilly, it's, it's finally becoming November, I think. Um, we're really pleased to welcome David Stewart back to the Pratt Library and to the Poe Room. Um, David has been here, I can't remember whether it's been two times before. Okay. Uh, I knew it was at least once. And we have, as um, we have both of those previous books here for sale tonight, too. Um, David Stewart has practiced law in Washington, D.C. for more than a quarter of a century, and he's argued appeals before the Supreme Court. But in his spare time, he's a writer and author um, of several highly acclaimed books, including The Summer of 1787 and Impeached, The Trial of President Andrew Johnson and the Fight for Lincoln's Legacy. David's new book is American Emperor, Aaron Burr's Challenge to Jefferson's America. Since the book was published about three weeks ago, David's been busy traveling around the country talking about it, and we're delighted that the Pratt is one of the, has been selected as one of the stops on his book tour. Aaron Burr, the third vice president, has been described as daring and perhaps deluded. Most of, him, most of us know him as the guy who killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel, but we probably know little else about his tumultuous life. In an article he contributed to Politico.com last week, David Stewart compared Burr to former Vice President Cheney under the headline, and I quote, most notorious VP Cheney or Burr. And so I'll leave it at that, and we'll um, let David answer that question for us. Welcome to the press. Thank you, Judy. Well, well, not to leave you hanging, um, I did con conclude that, in fact, Cheney should be viewed as more notorious, although Burr has plenty of claim to it. And at least one of my points was that each of them had shot a man while they were vice president. <laughs> but Burr was aiming. So um, thank you for coming out. Um, this story, I, I, at least one of the reviews I thought got it right, which is it's two parts adventure story and one part courtroom thriller. Um, it's, I wanted to write about it just because it's, it's outrageous. It's, it's hard to believe any of this really happened. And the cool part is it really did. Um, before I get too deeply into it, though, I want to just sketch some background factors that are very important for appreciating it. The first is what the United States was like in 1805, because the story happens between 1805 and 1807. Um, and you have to realize the Constitution had been in effect for less than 20 years. The nation was really an infant. Um, there had been secession movements out west, and the west then was Kentucky and Tennessee and Ohio. Those areas were very focused on the Mississippi River. That's how their goods got out through New Orleans. New Orleans had been controlled by Spain, and they really didn't feel as much tied to the East Coast as um, they felt really to uh, trying to uh, get their uh, goods through New Orleans. So they had very seriously considered many of the leaders Secession. There was, in 1804, a secession movement in New England. New Englanders were very unhappy with the Jefferson administration the whole time, frankly. And they had approached Aaron Burr to see if he would join them. 
Um, we had had two rebellions in Pennsylvania in the 1790s, the Whiskey Rebellion and the Freeze Rebellion. Both were over uh, uh, ob objections to paying taxes. Americans haven't changed that much over the years. We don't like to pay taxes. Um, but it was a very fluid country. Um, it was expanding rapidly. We had just purchased the Louisiana Purchase, which was an extraordinary expansion of the country. The, the gray there, I think I, oh yeah, we have the cool pointer. Um, the gray there is the original uh, country. And then out to the Mississippi was acquired during the peace with Britain. Uh, this part in the Louisiana Purchase basically doubled the country. Um, and we didn't even know the western boundary of, the, of Louisiana. Nobody, there were no maps. And it's a wonderful piece of lawyering they did when uh, the French were drawing up the treaty to sell it to us. They said, we give to the United States whatever we got from Spain. Because they couldn't actually describe what it was. Um, these territories obviously were still controlled by Spain, uh, as was Florida all the way over to the Mississippi. This, even this little purple section, which was called West Florida, was Spanish. And because we're Americans and because we're expansionist and love real estate, we wanted it all. So there was a lot of uh, drive back in 1805 to expand, to, f to secede. You have to appreciate just how uncertain the future really was. One of the writings I found quite astonishing was President Jefferson in 1804 wrote a letter and, and he had included this following passage. Whether we remain in one confederacy or form into Atlantic and Mississippi confederacies, I believe not very important to the happiness of either part. Those of the Western Confederacy will be as much our children and descendants as those of the Eastern. And I feel myself as much identified with that country in future time as with this. Well, imagine if President Obama were to say, you know, if California wants to go off on its own, that's okay. I don't much mind. We'll still think of them fondly. And it was an amazing uh, statement, but it reflected the uh, understandings at the time. Now, into this fluid situation, we get Aaron Burr. Uh, Burr was from a distinguished family. His father had been president of Princeton University. It was then called the College of New Jersey. And his grandfather had also been president. His grandfather was, in fact, the great uh, theologian, uh, Jonathan Edwards, who advised us all that we were sinners in the hands of an angry god. Um, it's not a terribly cheery message, but uh, uh, may be valid. Um, Burr, when still a teenager, had gone off to join the Continental Army when it was uh, before Brit uh, Boston in 1775. He was obviously very young, small, slight, um, and joined this horribly ill-conceived mission to conquer uh, Canada, which departed in late November and managed to arrive at, uh, at Quebec in uh, uh, around New Year's Day, uh, it was an incredibly arduous and difficult trip. And the astonishing thing was this little teenager turned out to be one of the toughest guys on the invasion team. He was a very brave and courageous soldier and rose rapidly in the army. Uh, the invasion went badly, but Burr's career went well. 
By the time he was 21, he was a colonel in the Continental Army. He commanded a regiment at the Battle of Monmouth. And it's important to remember that the men who served with him in the Army were his friends and followers for the next 40 years of his life. He was always highly regarded by them. He always went by the name Colonel Burr, uh, no matter what his actual office was. And his military experience formed him. He was a military guy in his heart. He only served in the Army for four years. But he always had a military man's attitude towards the world. He was a man of action, not a man of ideas. Um, he was politically successful. After the war, he became a lawyer, uh, became attorney general in New York, then became a United States senator. Uh, in the 1796 election, he was nominally the vice presidential candidate of the Republican Party, the Jeffersonian Party, and he got 30 electoral votes. And then in 1800, uh, he was part of this extraordinary meltdown that we had. The Constitution was written badly at the time, uh, and electors voted, had two votes, and they didn't designate who, designate who was president and who was vice president. So. Whoever got the most votes became president. Whoever got the second most votes became vice president. So in 1796, you had Adams win, and his opponent became vice president. Jefferson became vice president because he got the second num highest number of votes. So in 1800, they didn't want to have that happen again. So they were going to have very rigid voting. Everybody was going to vote for both candidates of their party. And the result was that Jefferson and Burr ended up in a tie. And that went into the uh, uh, House of Representatives, where the Federalists, the opponents of Jefferson, decided they liked Burr better than they liked Jefferson, so they started voting for Burr. And they created a deadlock for 35 ballots. It was a true constitutional crisis. And Jefferson was quite persuaded that Burr had not done enough to avoid the crisis, that he had not been clear enough that he thought Jefferson should be elected president and not Burr. It created a lot of ill will. They had not been terribly close beforehand, but they were especially at odds afterwards. Um, Burr, always though, there was something unconventional about him. He was a charismatic fellow. That's very difficult to capture over 200, 200 years later. But he, was, he had a magnetism and a, and a different kind of magnetism from some folks. I mean, Washington could walk in a room and command it because he was just gigantic, and he was the nation's hero. Uh, Hamilton would walk in and would tell stories in a loud voice, and if he'd had enough to drink, he'd jump up on the table and start singing songs. Um, Burr was quiet. He was reserved. Uh, he implied secrets and a certain mystery. He clearly was very smart. He clearly was very talented, and he managed to be a compelling figure without being a particularly noisy figure. He's always had impeccable manners, always uh, uh, was very uh, witty, but in a low-key way. Um, in a lot of ways, he was the bad boy of the founding. Um, he was always viewed askance by uh, some of his contemporaries. Largely, they thought he was a little too ambitious. It was a time when you weren't supposed to run for office. You stood for office. You didn't want to look too eager to serve. And I think Burr tended to look pretty eager. Um, he also uh, uh, 
didn't have, uh, he viewed his contemporaries in a candid fashion. Uh, we mythologize them a great deal. They really are larger than life figures in our imaginings these days. Um, for Burr, Washington was sort of dumb. Uh, he thought Hamilton was just not really presentable. He just, you know, didn't know how to behave in public. Um, and Jefferson, he thought, was a coward. Uh, these are different perspectives from what we usually get on these uh, characters. He made an unconventional marriage choice. He married a lady 10 years older than he. Um, she was the widow of a British officer. And in 1782, that was a big deal to marry the, marry the widow of a British officer. They actually started keeping company while the British officer was still alive. Um, but his death was not attributable to Burr. Um, and he had a view of women as fully the equal of men and with equal talents. Um, he was very unusual in that regard. He kept a portrait of Mary Wollstonecraft over his fireplace. She was the great advocate of women's rights in, in Britain. Um, he had his daughter educated as a young man of their time would have been educated. And she was widely viewed as the best educated woman in America. Uh, he opposed slavery. Uh, he sponsored anti-slavery legislation in New York. Uh, it was slightly awkward that he, every now and then, owned a slave. Um, consi logical consistency among that generation of Americans is hard to find. But his p views were generally uh, uh, advanced. Um, and he was a sort of a bewitching mix. He had a powerful intellect, uh, a very charismatic. And I want to emphasize the notion of secrets with him. Because as a lawyer, he used to tell his colleagues, that he used the characteristic phrase, things written remain. The obvious message being, don't write it down. And Burr never did. Um, his surviving papers are fill two volumes. Hamilton's papers are 35 volumes, just to give you a, a flavor of the difference. It's hard to find written records of Burr, or candid written records. Now, 1804 was Aaron Burr's very bad year. It started off badly because he learned that he was not going to be uh, Jefferson's running mate for eight, uh, the uh, presidential election, would not be stand for vice president. He decided to try to improve his uh, political uh, stature by running for governor of New York. Uh, he got beat. He actually got beat pretty bad. Um, in the aftermath of that loss, he discovered that, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I meant to show you, a, this is Theodosia Burr, his daughter. So uh, a small flavor of, uh, I do these books about history and there are so few female elements to it, I want to try to provide some of that. This uh, image is, of course, of the duel with Hamilton. I always loved the image because Hamilton's grabbing his head, and he was shot in the side. Um, so it's, it was the dominant Im image in all the books. I remember as a boy seeing this in a, in a book, and it is in all the books from the 19th century. But uh, they did the best they could. Um, the duel happened because Hamilton had given a speech that Burr didn't find out about until after the election, in which he had said that Burr was corrupt and ambitious and could not be trusted and was basically a lousy guy. Now, that was no different from what Hamilton had been saying about Burr for 12 years. So that was really not really worthy of note. 
and I note just parenthetically, there is no evidence in existence that Burr ever said anything unpleasant about Hamilton. It's quite odd. Hamilton denounced him for over a decade, and Burr never really returned fire, uh, to use a metaphor. Uh, Hamilton, though, on this one occasion, is quoted, was quoted as saying, and I have an opinion of this man still more despicable. Now, that's a phrase that comes to us and sort of bounces off our ears. Uh, it sounds even a little like the old Daffy Duck cartoons, what a despicable development that is. Um, but in 1805, it implied sexual perversion. Um, and if you were to use whatever code words there are today for that, and I won't offer them, but you can think of a few, uh, it would really be an outrageous thing to say about a public figure and would cause a serious reaction. So Burr wrote a strong letter to Hamilton asking him to adopt the remark, explain it, repudiate it, or meet him on a field of honor. Hamilton wrote a few mealy-mouthed responses. They went back and forth for about three weeks before they finally ended up on the field at Weehawken, in New Jersey. Um, the uh, outcome of the duel is well known, obviously. Hamilton died, um, and Burr's political career died. He was indicted for murder in New York State. He was indicted for murder in New Jersey. In fact, he was the Vice President of the United States at this time, and he had to head out on the lamb. Uh, and he really was on the run for about four months until he decided that they weren't actually going to try to extradite him. And he went back to Philadelphia and, I, I'm sorry, went back to Washington, D.C., and presided over the Senate for, the, for four months while under indictment. This astonished people, appalled many. Um, at this point, though, Burr finally knows, after these developments, his opportunities to, for political success are, are gone. For, for conventional political success. And like a lot of Americans, for a couple of centuries, when his career went south, he went west. And he decided he would make his new career in the west. This is a, depicts a journey he took right after he left office. And the dotted line is the, his trip mostly tra tracing the rivers. Um, downriver, which is much easier travel. And then this uh, solid line is when he was returning back. You'll see he zigzagged around. That's hard travel, uh, tramping through forests. Um, he was almost 50 years old at the time, but he was still a tough guy. And he, this was uh, hard travel, seven months worth of travel, and uh, he got through it. Um, the travel involved really a recruiting campaign. He met with all the important men out west that he could meet. He was the first vice president or president who'd ever crossed the Appalachian Mountains. So he was quite an eminent fellow and quite notorious because of the Burr, uh, uh, the Hamilton duel. Um, so everybody wanted to meet with him. He, there were a great many Continental Army veterans out west. One of the things we did after the war was we didn't really pay our soldiers uh, what we had promised them, so instead we gave them land out west. It was uh, really a classical uh, tradition from Roman days. That's what the centurions would get when they came back from uh, battle. They would get lands, and that's what we gave to the uh, 
Revolutionary War officers. And so he, they remembered him well and fondly. He met with them and really was recruiting their, their sons in many instances. He had been so young that many of the officers were 15, 20 years older than he, but their sons were just the right age um, for his expedition. He met with two future presidents, Andrew Jackson and William Henry Harrison. He met with senators, met with a former Speaker of the House of Representatives. And most of all, he met with the general in chief of the army, who was an astonishing figure, James Wilkinson. Teddy Roosevelt called James Wilkinson, let me get it right here, uh, the most, oh boy, in all our history, there is no more despicable character. He was general in chief of the army. The army was a very small operation at this time. There were only 3,000. Jefferson really didn't like armies. He thought they were unnecessary and sort of uh, led to bad things. Uh, and so most people of any stature weren't in the army. Which, so Wilkinson rose to be general in chief almost by default. Um, he was court-martialed a number of times, uh, never convicted. It was said of Wilkinson that he uh, never won a battle or lost an investigation. Um, he, most astonishingly, was a secret agent for Spain. Um, this takes a minute or two to really take on board. But for 20 years, he received bribes from the Spanish government, in return for which he provided reports and analyses of political and military developments in the United States. And while I was sort of struggling to really come to terms with the notion that the head of our armed forces was in this position, I discovered that in one of his reports, he tells the Spaniards about the Lewis and Clark expedition and recommends that they intercept them, arrest them, and haul them down to Mexico, and also recommends that they break up the settlement on the Missouri River that has been established by Daniel Boone. Now, if you're trashing Lewis and Clark and Daniel Boone, you're just a bad guy. And Wilkinson was an amazingly bad guy, the head of our armed forces, and he was Burr's ally. What they um, came up with, well, let me just tell you James Wilkinson's story, which is, is sort of fun. Um, he ex accepted the Louisiana Purchase from the uh, uh, French at a ceremony in New Orleans. And they had a big ball that evening. And most of the people in New Orleans were French speakers. Uh, they were called Creoles. And through mo most of the Louisiana territory, they were French speakers. So, and they didn't really like being coming part of the United States. This was uh, not their choice. They were going to have to learn a new language. Their land titles were not obviously going to be respected. They were just unhappy with it. They thought they were Frenchmen. So to try to keep the peace, the, the band was playing a French song and an American song and a French song and an American song. Well, Wilkinson got boisterous for whatever reason, and he demanded two American songs in a row. And he was the general in chief of the army, so what were they going to do? Uh, one of the oddest things of the story is that the second American song was Rule Britannia, which you got to believe, was chosen not because it was particularly American, but because it would tick off the French. Um, in any event, when, it was, when they were in the middle of rule Britannia, a fistfight breaks out. The French begin sing, standing on their chairs and singing La Marseillaise. And at the end of the fight, Wilkinson leads the Americans out of the, out of the uh, hall. 
every, the only thing that's missing are Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. It's just an amazing episode of real, just terrible misbehavior. He was the representative of our government. Um, but Burr and Wilkinson reached a basic understanding. In uh, the outlines of the plan <coughs> were, let me see, yeah, that Burr would come down the river with some, uh, as many volunteers as he could get for his expedition. Uh, uh, Wilkinson was up here in St. Louis, you can't quite see it. Uh, and he, there were also soldiers down here on the Spanish border. This was disputed territory. And Wilkinson would bring as many soldiers as he possibly could to join Burr. And that they would jointly begin an invasion of West Florida, over here, which, which was Spanish territory, beginning with Baton Rouge, and also Mexico. They were going to seize all the ships in New Orleans Harbor and sail them to uh, Veracruz, and just like Cortez had done in the 16th century, march up to Mexico City. Um, when you seize all the ships in New Orleans Harbor, it seems to me you're actually taking over New Orleans. There was an expectation that the Creoles would rise in, in an insurrection, and that they would join with Burr and Wilkinson, and you would really have a new empire. Uh, the notion of liberating Mexico had a tinge of idealism to it, that we were destroying the colonial uh, uh, empire of Spain, but it also involved uh, simple greed. Uh, there was a lot of land down there, and I've said we were always after some land. Also, Mexico was producing two-thirds of the world's silver at this time. There was a lot of wealth there, and Americans were very eager to get it. Um, there also was an expectation that whoever controlled New Orleans might well end up controlling Kentucky and Tennessee and Ohio, that they might well fall in. Now, Burr was always very careful in what he said. And when he traveled out west, what he said were versions of the following. He said that the Atlantic states were exploiting the western states, that the western states were in the same position vis-a-vis -vis the Atlantic states that the Atlantic states had been with respect to the British Empire in 1776. It's a very revolutionary suggestion, because the right answer in that situation was to rebel. He was quite clearly inviting rebellion. He also said that the separation of the West from the United States was inevitable. That was a standard part of his statements. That war with Spain over Mexico was highly desirable, and that was his fondest wish to lead troops Against, Mex uh, against Spain. And underlying it all is Burr's real feeling. If you can imagine a former vice president making statements like this, he really is acting as though President Jefferson essentially isn't there, or at the very least that Jefferson doesn't count for much. I really think he felt that Jefferson was a panty waste. Um, So why was Burr doing this? This is a question you have to struggle with because Burr was not a confessional fellow. When I compared him to Cheney, and the reason I wrote the piece was Cheney's memoir is out, and it seems to have been the sort of, it turns out I was always right about everything, sort of memoir that is particularly unattractive to me. Um, and one of the reasons 
I say Burr is less notorious, is he lived for 30 years after this whole episode, and he never wrote a memoir. <laughs> um, he uh, really was a very closed-mouthed fellow. But you have to appreciate the sort of pride and ambition he really did have. There was, in the revolutionary generation, a concept of fame, which was a just the highest possible value. And it wasn't the sort of celebrityhood that we think of as empty and shallow. Fame for them, and, and Washington wrote quite openly about how he desired fame. It was a recognition of your quality. It was a recognition of your character, that you were admired and held before people um, and became famous. And Burr wanted that desperately. And he'd reached a position in American politics where he simply was not going to get it. I also think there was an element of vengeance against Jefferson. When he was engaged in these, this planning, he went and met with the British ambassador uh, to the United States, and he asked him for 100,000 pounds as a loan to support the operation. Um, he asked him to send a British fleet to meet him in New Orleans. Imagine that, a British fleet. And he said quite candidly, if there was such a fleet, if this happened, if he succeeded, that it would mean the dissolution of the United States. He expected New England would secede, that the United States would simply break up, and plainly, his new empire would become the dominant power of North America. Now, the expedition launched in the second half of 1906, 1806, excuse me, um, and it was an epic botch. It didn't go well. Uh, most of the people were supposed to be recruited from the Ohio Valley. That's where the people were. Uh, Burr commissioned the construction of boats sufficient to carry 1,500 men. I told you that the army was 3,000 men, and they were spread out over the whole country. So if he was leading 1,500 men down the Mississippi River, he would have been the lord of all he surveyed. He would have been the strongest man for hundreds of miles. Um, but at the last minute, really in the last month before they were going to set off, things turned against him. Uh, one was he got prosecuted in Kentucky. There were so many reports. It, this is often referred to as the Burr Conspiracy, but I never use that term because a conspiracy is a secret. There was nothing secret about this. It was in the newspapers. And there was a newspaper in Frankfort, Kentucky that published all these revelations about what Burr was up to. 50% of what they published was false. But 50% was true. And the prosecutor tried to stop Burr to accuse him of trying to create a war with a private war with Spain. The grand jury refused to uh, convict him. He didn't have terribly good evidence, but it put Burr in bad odor. Um, Jefferson had been getting warnings about Burr for 16 months. They'd been coming from the West saying, Burr is up to no good. He's going to lead a secession. You've got to watch out for Burr. He's going to create, he's, he's a traitor. Jefferson did nothing. Finally, at this moment, he does issue a proclamation that there are people out West doing something bad and you shouldn't do anything. Good Americans should do nothing about it. He doesn't name Burr. And 
One of the men who Burr had tried to recruit, a fellow named William Eaton, issues a public statement about statements Burr had made, which included the assertion that Burr wanted to lead a coup d'etat in Washington, that he had said with 200 men he could take over the government, throw Congress out, throw President Jefferson out, and take over the entire nation. Now, I don't think he actually meant that if he said it. I think he must have been drunk or just sort of on a bad day, because he didn't really try to do that. But you can imagine that was a pretty uh, scandalous thing to be in the paper. So in the event, only 100 men showed up. Many, uh, a bunch of them gathered on Blennerhassett Island. Some of you may know the location. It's across from Parkersburg, West Virginia. That was Virginia at that time. And with the militia coming from Ohio and some vigilantes from Virginia, they set off in the river in the middle of the night. Uh, Burr wasn't with them at the time. He was down here in Nashville with President, future President Andrew Jackson. Jackson and Burr were great fr friends. Uh, they were both duelists. Jackson had killed a couple of guys in duels, and uh, Jackson loved the idea of going to war. He really was a, a warrior, and he was eager to fight Spain. But at the last minute, he had gotten some reports that Burr might, in fact, be trying to do something against the United States government. And so Jackson backed out at the last minute. It was a big disappointment for Burr. And then Burr set down the Cumberland River and met the rest of his men on the shores of the Ohio, where the Cumberland comes into the Ohio. It's what's now Illinois. And there are two key moments that sort of crystallize the failure of the expedition. Um, one of them is when he meets his men. And there's about 100 of them, and they gather around him on the shore. Many of them have never met him before. And he goes around, shakes hands, and so greets them. And then he stands in the middle of them, and he's about to speak. And he notices that some of the people who live in the area have come. It's a big deal to have 100 guys show up. And then Vice President Burr, he was a major figure. So there are some other people hanging around. And Burr, with all of his men there, says, I can't tell you what we're here for. It's got to be one of the worst anticlimaxes in history. He's afraid to tell them. And as Chief Justice John Marshall decides in his trial some months later, if he was, if his purposes were innocent, he could have told them. <laughs> and if he wasn't willing to tell them, he was up to no good. Um, one of the amazing parts of the story to me is that his men then get back in the boats and go down the river. Now, boy, wouldn't you think that that's the moment you turn around and go home? The leader can't tell you what you're doing or what he's doing. But they, they continued down the river. With only these few men, Burr's only real hope was Wilkinson. And Wilkinson at the time was out here facing off with the Spaniards. It was a terrific opportunity for him to create a war with Spain. There was a, a border dispute. He just had to start shooting. Uh, he receives a letter the famous cipher letter, if you've studied this at all, and I have a copy of it in the back of the book. It's from Burr. It has amazing things in it. You know, glory awaits to Mexico and beyond. It's, it's full of exhortations. I am ready. Be ready yourself. And Wilkinson, the double agent, becomes a triple agent. 
and he decides he's going to back out on Burr. So he sits down and he creates false documents, and he doctors up Burr's letter to take out incriminating stuff about Wilkinson, and he sends it up to Jefferson. And he hurries back here to New Orleans. And this is a funny thing. If you want to intercept Burr, if you're out here and you want to intercept Burr, you go to Natchez. That's the logical place to get him. But Wilkinson goes to New Orleans because that's where all the people are who know about his involvement. So he arrests all those people. He sends a bunch of them east to face treason charges. Uh, he destroys a lot of records. And he waits for Burr. Burr, nevertheless, is intercepted just above Natchez. Uh, and he's arrested. Uh, he goes before a grand jury in Mississippi territory. And once again, the grand jury refuses to indict. In fact, they even come back and say that they're angry with the government for persecuting Mr. Colonel Burr. But he, the judge keeps him on bond. So he's on bail, basically. He's anxious, frankly, that uh, uh, Wilkinson is going to have him killed. And Wilkinson sends five men to go capture Burr, to go in plain clothes. He takes a, some of his senior officers, sends them with weapons and in plain clothes to Mississippi to try to capture Burr. So Burr heads out. He lights out for the, the woods. And he's finally arrested above Mobile two, two weeks later, brought up to Richmond, Virginia, to stand trial for treason. So he's drug all the way up here. Now, at this point, Jefferson is fully aroused. He is angry. He is vindictive. And he really leads the prosecution. He doesn't appear in court, but he is pushing the prosecution at every minute. He sends more than 20 letters to the prosecutor during the trial. And he's very precise about the things he wants the prosecutor to do. The legal strategy that the government hits is amazing. They want to charge him with treason. That's the only thing that will be satisfying, politically adequate. And stop for a second and st step back. This is a former vice president of the United States who's about to be tried for treason, where he faces hanging. Just imagine what CNN and Fox News would do with that if we had that kind of trial today. You know, most centuries, we have about a dozen trials of the century. Um, this was our first trial of the century. It really wasn't transfixed the entire nation. We had about 200 newspapers at the time, and pretty much every newspaper had transcripts of the trial on page one for three months. Um, the government, though, it was in Richmond. The trial was in Richmond. They wanted it in Richmond because although most of the bad stuff, or what they thought was bad stuff, happened out west, after the experience with the Kentucky grand jury and the Mississippi grand jury, they decided, you know, those Westerners are never going to convict this guy. They, they're too free and easy about these things. They think invading Mexico is a good idea. So they wanted to try him in Richmond, in Virginia, with a bunch of good Jeffersonians who would hate Burr the way they should. So they ended up having to indict him for acts in Virginia. I mentioned Blennerhassett Island, which was in Virginia at the time. So they claimed that the treason happened on Blennerhassett Island. You'll remember what I also said. Burr wasn't there. 
He was down in Tennessee with, President, with Jackson. So it was a fatally flawed prosecution right from the start. The presiding officer was Chief Justice John Marshall. Marshall uh, was our greatest judge. He also was a guy who was very uh, uh, skeptical of Jefferson as president, uh, had been a political opponent, knew him quite well. They were both Virginians. They were actually distant cousins. Uh, and he wasn't going to be buffaloed by the, the political pressure to convict Burr. And he ran the trial very much, uh, frankly, in Burr's favor. Uh, both sides assembled legal dream, te dream teams. Burr was represented by two former delegates to the Constitutional Convention, two former attorneys general of the United States. He was actually the best lawyer in the room. He was a terrific lawyer. Uh, the prosecutors included this uh, William Wirt, who was actually a Marylander, who became uh, attorney general uh, for 12 years. Um, and the legal issues that were at stake, even under this flawed indictment, were critical ones for the whole country. Central one, of course, is what was the meaning of treason. Treason was something that the framers of the Constitution had feared greatly. When they wrote the Constitution, they wrote a restriction on treason in the text. It is the only crime that is described in the Constitution. And in order to be convicted of treason, you either need to confess to it, or there needs to be evidence from two people of an overt act in support of treason. And treason consists solely of giving aid and comfort to the enemy or levying war against the government. That's it. It's very narrow. We'd had some treason prosecutions in the 1790s when the judges hadn't been so careful about that. But in the Burr case, Marshall was very particular. He narrowly applied the treason clause, and that's been very important to us. Treason had been abused by the kings of England to uh, oppress their enemies for centuries, and we've never really seen that in this country. There also was a huge issue over the meaning of the habeas corpus clause. I mentioned that uh, Wilkinson had arrested a bunch of Burr's Confederates in New Orleans and shipped them back east to stand trial. As soon as they got there, they sought their freedom. And Chief Justice Marshall, again, upheld their right to a neutral review by a magistrate, even though they were charged with treason, and they were all set free. None of them ever stood trial. There also was the first case involving executive privilege. Uh, Burr was not a passive defense lawyer. He attacked the government every chance he got. And one of the first things he did was subpoena President Jefferson's records. And Jefferson's response was, hang on, I'm the president. I don't have to do this. And Chief Justice Marshall's ruling was, well, actually, you do. Perhaps your records are so sensitive that they shouldn't be produced, and I'll be the judge of that. But you need to apply, uh, comply with the law, that the president is not above the law. And some of you may remember from the President Nixon impeachment case, the Watergate stuff, and again with President Clinton. We have these struggles over executive privilege once a generation at least now. And it's a balance. There are some things that the president should be able to keep secret and some things that he has to uh, make available in a court case. And that again comes from the Burr case. Um, the oratory in the trial was remarkable. Uh, William Wirt, the 
prosecutor gave an amazing speech, the who was Blennerhassett speech that was uh, uh, repeated by schoolboy school orators for the next century. They were forced to memorize it. Uh, it was really bad for Burr's legacy, which wasn't going to be terribly good anyway, but the speech compares him to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. It's not the best analogy to have live after you in history. Um, the defense was equally florid. Luther Martin, another Maryland, Marylander, was one of the defense lawyers, and he spoke on one motion for two days, which was seven hours each day, 14 hours, and one of the observers said, it's amazing, he's not even hoarse. And he was famous for drinking brandy through the trial day, that he had a big earthenware mug and he'd just sort of keep drinking brandy the whole time. And sometimes it got the better of him and sometimes it didn't. Um, and on the final motions, he argued for three days. That's 21 hours. Uh, it, I can't even aspire to that. Um, but as I said, the case got, went off finally on the fact that Burr wasn't on Blennerhassett Island. And the jury was given such a narrow uh, charge by Chief Justice Marshall, there was no way they could convict. These were all good Jeffersonians. When they were picking the jury, they couldn't find any, enough jurors who were neutral, who were unbiased. So finally, after days and days, Burr said, well, I'll just take the next four. I don't care who they are. Because he knew the jurors were going to be against him no matter what. He had to win the case from the judge. And one of the four who was then seated said, wait a second, I can't be a juror here. I think this man should be hanged. So this was the kind of jury he was in front of. When they came back with no choice but to acquit him, they didn't return a not guilty verdict. Their verdict was that Burr was not proved to be guilty under this indictment by any evidence submitted to us. It just drips with disappointment that they really had wanted to convict, but they just simply were not able to. And the best evidence against Burr really did, was never admitted at trial. Um, there was correspondence between Wilkinson and Burr that both men announced they were too, that no gentleman would produce another gentleman's correspondence. Now that would not fly today, but in 1807 that was allowed to be a, 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 the basis for refusing to produce this correspondence. It was sort of a mutual deterrence situation. I suspect they both had correspondence that was going to incriminate the other guy. Um, none of his Confederates testified against him. One of them, actually, Eric Bowman, had been sent east by Wilkinson to face trial uh, treason charges. He, he didn't face them. But while he was in jail, he insisted on an interview with President Jefferson. So he came from being in jail for treason to going to the White House. And he met with Jefferson. And he described the whole scheme to him. And then Jefferson asked him to write it out, and he wrote it out. Um, but they never got it into evidence, because when he went to Richmond, he was hauled down to Richmond, uh, he said, I can't testify without incriminating myself. That's the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. So the prosecutor offered him a pardon, and he said, no, I'm innocent. I couldn't accept a pardon. It was ridiculous. I mean, it made no sense at all. And it is something, to be honest, that Chief Justice Marshall really ought to answer for that he allowed Bowman to get away with uh, that particular scam. Um, there was a lot of evidence against Burr in the archives of the Spanish and British governments, because he had approached both of them and disclosed his plans. 
those archives did not become uh, released to the public for 75 years. Um, and I think it's important to keep in mind about Byrd. One of the big issues that always comes up with him is what did he really intend? And there are some historians who say, you know, he's just an honest guy who was trying to settle the West. The Bastrop tract here was a piece of land that he acquired an interest in. Um, and some of the men were told that they were going to settle the Bastrop tract. Others say, no, he was trying to bring down the entire US government. And what I finally concluded, and this is the central mystery that really drove me to write the book, was he intended essentially what he could get away with. He was going to set off with these guys and see what happened. And with Burr, I always think of, and this is a bit of a, a mind mental leap, but stick with me, um, the Marlon Brando movie, The Wild Ones from the 50s, where he's the head of the motorcycle gang that goes into the uh, little California town, and they tear up the town in a way that's actually sort of quaint today. Um, and halfway through, the sweet young thing says to Brando, what are you rebelling against? And Brando says, what do you got? And that's sort of how I see Burr. He was there to see what he could make happen. Um, he wanted to do something great. And to be honest, if it was only settling the Bastrop tract, he would do that. But boy, that was last on his list. He had lots of other things he hoped to do ahead of time. If he could be head of American troops invading Spanish territory, that'd be great. If he was head of his own troops invading Spanish territory and set up the empire, that would be great too. Now, it's not just an amazing adventure story. Here, this is Chief Justice John Marshall. I want you to take in his greatness. Um, it's not just a great adventure story, though, in a courtroom thriller. It actually had important consequences for the country, consequences we live with today, not all of which Burr intended. His failure actually ironically helped to reinforce the Union. Um, secession would continue to be a seductive idea in this country. I mean, we certainly went through the Civil War afterwards. It wasn't killed forever. But for a while, Burr put it in fairly bad odor. He invited the dissolution of the nation, and most citizens said, no, thank you. Um, the legal principles I've talked about that were established in Marshall, Marshall's opinions, the meaning of the treason clause, the availability of habeas corpus relief, executive privilege, and most importantly, that even a despised defendant like Aaron Burr in 1807 is entitled to a fair trial, is entitled to every right that the Constitution and the laws of the United States make available to him. That the courts are independent of the political branches, and it doesn't matter if the president wants to see him swinging from the gallows, he's going to get a fair trial. And also where Burr really excelled, and I've always liked this drawing of him as an old man. Uh, he ended up finally in New York practicing law. Uh, the murder charges against him were dropped. He went to Europe for four years uh, and tried to talk the French and the British into supporting him in, invade, in an invasion of South America. That was really quite delusional. Um, in the last 20 years of his life, he was a lawyer in New York City. Um, but where he really excelled was his geopolitical vision. He understood that those lands in the rest of North America were 
really part of the destiny of the United States. In 1807 or 1806, he meant to make it happen. And, many, and he knew that if he could, he would become a great figure in history. But instead, it was Andrew Jackson who took Florida from the Spaniards in 1818, and that was part of his uh, claim to become president after that. It was Sam Houston who became one of the founding fathers of Texas. And it was Winfield Scott and Zachary Taylor who in, invaded Mexico and took away the whole Southwest and California from uh, uh, Mexico. Taylor rode that victory into the White House. Scott was a candidate for president, although he failed. Indeed, in 1835, just a year before his death, Burr has one of those symmetrical moments in history. He reads about the independence of Texas, and he says to a friend, see, I was right. I was only 30 years ahead of my time. What was treason in me is patriotism now. And it was, I suppose, vindication of a sort. But it came far too late for Aaron Burr. Thank you, and I'd be pleased to take any questions you might have. You mentioned that at one point, uh, Mr. Burr went to the British consul or ambassador and sought money. And also- Twice. You, or twice. And also you mentioned that um, he was provisioning for 1,500 people. So my question is, did he get the money from the British? And if not, who funded, who was, who was backing him? Because he wasn't a particularly wealthy man, was he? No, uh, he was not a wealthy man. And those, those are great are questions. Those are three related questions. Yeah, no, those are great questions. Uh, first, he never got the money from the British. Uh, or he might well have succeeded. <laughs> uh, he did uh, shake down, shake down's the wrong word. He persuaded a number of rich men to back him. I have to assume that they did so with promises of wealth from Mexico. Uh, it's hard to know for sure. Uh, we know that Harmon Blennerhassett, the owner of Blennerhassett Island, was impoverished by what he contributed to uh, Burr's expedition. Uh, there was another fellow from Mississippi who claimed he had kicked in 50 grand. A lot of these creditors came out of the woodwork during the trial and tried to collect from Burr. He didn't have a dime. I mean, they, it was hopeless. Um, I think he was probably underfunded by a good deal. There was a rich man in Kentucky who was supposed to have arranged for him to uh, recover a great deal of money there. Um, but understandably, most of these people didn't want it known that they were bankrolling Burr. It really wasn't going to be good for their uh, standing in the community once everything uh, had blown up. So we don't have a good line on all of his, all of his financial sources. Yes, sir. Oh, this is very simple. Uh, how old was he when he died, and what did he die of? Uh, he was 80. Uh, he had a stroke uh, and died of the consequences of the stroke about six months later. Um, it's hard not to tell the story about Burr's final years, which is his wife died when he was 37, and he was a very famous ladies' man within his generation. In fact, one of his longtime friends said, it's amazing he achieved anything in view of all the time he spent chasing women. Um, 
when he, so from 37 until 77, he was single. Uh, and he got married at 77 to the richest woman in New York. And within six months, she started divorce proceedings claiming he had taken all her money. It was fairly humiliating. Um, also claimed he had been dallying with the, the maid and God knows what. Uh, it was the usual scandalous Aaron Burr situation. And uh, the divorce became final on the day he died. What is it, uh, what's the meaning of the title? Well, it's partly truthful and it's partly ironic. Um, I think he had aspirations to, uh, when he wrote about taking over Mexico, he would write, they're not ready for uh, uh, a representative government. I need say no more. He never actually said, I'm going to be Aaron the first. Um, but it's pretty clear that that would have been cool with him. Um, and, and so that is, is the source of it. But he also didn't really come too close. It was an era of Bonaparte. I mean, Im this implausible little Corsican guy had become the emperor of Europe. So, you know, Berg was writing on it, uh, painting on a canvas that his contemporaries had seen uh, painted before. Yes, sir. Uh, I read the Gore Vidal novel 30 years ago and thought it was terrific. And I haven't read it since. When I was working on the book, I didn't want to read it because I was afraid he would invade my imagination and I would start writing his sentences. Um, my wife read it, and I had to keep telling her, no, no, he made it up. <laughs> it's fiction. Um, I, as I recall it, I think he captured Burr's personality reasonably well. Burr was a guy who was saying, you know, that the emperor has no clothes, uh, that, you know, everybody is not as great as they seem. Um, he had a sardonic outlook. When he was in exile in Europe, you know, I mentioned that he's, he left so few written records. He started keeping a journal when he was in Europe. He was so lonesome. He was just miserable and poor. Um, and it's such a wonderful moment because, as a researcher because you get it. Finally, you can hear his voice, and you understand why people liked him. I mean, he's such a monster in our history, a boogeyman. But he's charming. He's funny. He's self-deprecating. Um, he has interesting insights about people. He's very sympathetic to poor people. Um, he's a mensch. And it's a, it's a gift that we, and it's unfortunately after all of the times we really care about, but you do get finally some sense of him. And one of the awkwardnesses of his journal, of course, is that he also recorded every time, well, not every time, but many times when he had dalliances with prostitutes which is a very odd thing to have done. And he would even record how much he had spent, and sometimes commentary. Um, so, uh, Did he have any descendants beyond his daughter? And if so, what became of them? Uh, his daughter was his sole legitimate descendant. Uh, it is believed that there were others. When he was an old man in New York, there were at least two young men he took in who were thought to be his illegitimate sons, and he, whom he supported through life. He, one went to West Point, another became a uh, businessman with 
backing from Burr. Um, Theodosia, uh, it's a tragic story. Uh, she uh, was separated from him, from him for these four years when he was away. She had one son who made it to age 11 and then died of fever. Um, she was bereft. She was then not a very old woman, maybe 30. Uh, and he came back, immediately got to New York, wrote to her. She was in South Carolina with her husband. Please come. He sent a man to accompany her up to New York. The two of them board a ship in South Carolina to uh, sail to New York, and the ship is never heard from again. There is uh, a myth that they were taken by pirates. There was a novel that came out about six months ago claiming to be Theodosia's story as a pirate's wife. Um, I, there's no real evidence for any of that. Um, and Burr writes after her death, uh, or disappearance, uh, I am severed from the human race. It was his, uh, she was the only person on earth he really cared about. Thank you for your patience with the second question. I really enjoyed your, your lecture. Thank you very much for that as well. I'm relatively new to Baltimore, and so you may be familiar with the fact that Baltimore has some attachment to the War of 1812. Yes. And I've never, it's not something I've known much about, and consequently, I've never, I was always puzzled by the British almost obsession with going from here to New Orleans to fight the battle, that battle. Which, and so listening to your whole description of this, I wondered, based on your research and the fact that it's really only seven years difference, it's not big time, do you think, um, what's your view on whether or not this whole episode may have played into the British choosing New Orleans is one of their um, points of battle. I don't know of evidence to support it. It's plausible at some level, but then again, you just have to look at a map. Uh, you know, New Orleans was the choke point for uh, all of the interior of the country. Uh, the French Empire, when the French controlled Canada, went down the Mississippi River. Uh, so uh, New Orleans was a, a uh, the most logical place for them to go, as well as New York. So um, I'm not sure we can give Burr credit for that. I think they, they both saw the obvious. Thank you very much. Oh, all right, one more question. You mentioned that he, um, Burr was indicted by both New York and New Jersey after killing Hamilton. What were the, what were the, the laws of dueling uh, at the time, and why did New York indict if um, it occurred in New Jersey? Uh, New York indicted because the governor of New York really didn't like Burr. <laughs> uh, and the laws of uh, dueling was illegal, uh, but it was widely done. And you could, in fact, get indicted for murder. Uh, and it did happen occasionally, although I am not aware of an instance where anyone was ever convicted, because it was always understood that def the defense would be self-defense. Guy had a pistol. He was angry at me. What, what was I supposed to do? Um, and ultimately, the murder indictments against Burr were, were just dropped, um, although it took a period of years for that to happen. Um, and you know, we had duels. Uh, there was one in Virginia in 1826. This is 20 years later. 
between the Secretary of State, Henry Clay, and U.S. Senator from Virginia, John Randolph. Now, fortunately, they, they were bad shots. They didn't actually hit each other. But, you know, dueling was what we did. Stephen Decatur, our great hero of the War of 1812, uh, was killed in a duel. Um, so uh, it, it was what honorable gentlemen did. Thank you very much. <laughs>